Welcome to this EIP Talks podcast. I am Matthew Blaisby, a European and UK patent attorney and partner here at DIP, and I am delighted to be joined by Dirk Visser. Now, many practitioners, European and beyond, listening to this podcast will no doubt be familiar with the name Dirk Visser and their trusty dog-eared copy of his annotated guide to the European Patent Convention, the EPC textbook. Dirk has been with us at EIP since 2005 and has practiced as a European patent attorney for over 30 years now. In 2020, he was presented with a Lifetime Achievement Award at the Managing IP Awards in view of his contribution to the industry. A great honour indeed. I have been lucky enough to work with, closely with Dirk for many years since early in my training. His deep and analytical insight on the EPC is still so very valuable. So we thought together that a podcast offering an insight into Dirk's perspective would be of interest to many. And on that, welcome Dirk. Thank you, Matthew. I'm happy to discuss with you a few topics I came across in the past 30 years of working with the EPC. Brilliant. Thank you. Looking forward to it. As a starting question, I was very interested to find out about what has kept your engagement with this topic for so long. Running and editing a book for so many years is a really big commitment on top of your day job. And there must have been something which caught your interest and your, your excitement about it. What is it? A really important factor is the contact with the people at the EPO. And that has changed over the years. I remember calling the EPO in the 90s about a certain law change. The help desk asked the file reference. And when I told her that it was not for a pending case, but for a book, she closed the call by stating, sorry, we don't provide information for books. 10 years later, when I called the EPO about the law change, I was greeted as an acquaintance and connected to the person in the legal department that had written the proposal to change the law. Also very stimulating were the discussions with readers of the book. And they often led to improvements. And they made me think again about issues. See, always a driving force has been for me to find the logic behind the law. Why is it written as it is? And I hardly ever stopped my research before I found this logic. And of course, there's also excitement when the book is cited by a board of appeal. And the book is used a lot within the EPO, and they realize that examiners sometimes rely on the book. Once a director in DG1 told his examiners that they should not have a copy of my book on their desks in oral proceedings, they should not give the impression to parties that they were guided by my interpretation of the law. Now, funny, but very flattering. And I can see what what draws you to that interaction with the real lawmakers? I think in the end with so many jobs, it's, it's working with the people that makes the difference. So the first edition of your book was in 1993 and you've updated it annually ever since. Presumably there are few people who've studied the EPC in such detail and for so long. And you must have seen many changes, the technology, the law evolves. 
Is there anything which stands out? Yeah, I'll I'll just mention a few changes. The first one is the affected change within the EPO. From the very start of the office, there were two types of examiner. An examiner doing only searches and an examiner doing only examinations. This changed about 30 years ago to one type of examiner who was doing both searches and examinations. And that should require, of course, an adaptation of the EPC to accommodate this change. But in the EPO, they didn't have time, sufficient time to prepare the changes before the diplomatic conference in the year 2000. Hence, the entire search and grant procedure is still marked by a no longer existing difference between these two types of examiner. And on these issues, the EPC is really more complicated than necessary. I've always wondered about that. You can see that throughout the search and examination process, even though it feels like it's a single process, when you look at the guidelines or the law, there is this um, disjoint, isn't there, between language referring to search and language referring to examination. They even stamp the file when examination officially starts, even though the examiner's already looked at the case for the search. Why, why were they not given enough time? It's a bit odd. In about 1999, the Administrative Council of the EPO decided that there should be a diplomatic conference to change the EPC. And they decided that it would also be nice to call the new law the EPC 2000. And that meant that all preparations should be done within a single year. And so the legal department of the EPO got less than one year even to prepare the proposals for the conference, which is far too short to make difficult changes like merging search and examination. And hence this lack of adaptation of the law is caused by the number fetishism of the administrative council. How funny. Well, we've all been up against the deadline, haven't we, in this job? Yeah. A second change which I would like to mention is the advent of new technologies in communication. When the EPO started, it was a paper-based office, keeping paper files and communicating on paper with the patent attorneys. Now it's a mainly electronic office without paper and communicating through electronic channels. And about each year there are changes in the law relating to this move from paper to electronics. It does really help to streamline things, doesn't it? And, and of course, a major change more recently was during the pandemic when video communications really took over. Um, they had been available for all proceedings before, but, but now we can email examiners informally, fix teams and Zoom calls to discuss cases. It, it, it does make a big difference when you see the examiner there on the video screen and you can, you can interact more, more directly. Um, things really have moved on a lot there, haven't they? They have, certainly. Um, last change I would like to mention, which does seriously affect our work, is the way in which the boards of appeal operate. They have been understaffed for many years, 
which caused serious backlogs in appeal cases and delays of years were not uncommon. They've now changed their rules of procedure in such a way that a party must present all its arguments up front. And he cannot wait with devising new arguments till another party or the board raises certain issues. This new way of working makes life easier and more efficient for the boards. But, on the other hand, requires parties to put in quite a lot of work at the start. And part of that work will probably not be used at all. I think now many of us have experienced this, this change firsthand. And the increased efficiency and, and shortening of the queue is certainly welcome. It gives you certainty sooner. But as you say, there's a lot more work to anticipate and try and cover the potential issues up front. And that's that's not just during the appeal process, but even in first instance, you need to be thinking ahead to a potential appeal and laying the groundwork and getting the arguments on the file early. It, it's, yeah, a crystal ball would be useful. So I know that some people are critical of the EPO for being too strict in examining the patent applications compared with some other jurisdictions. But the EPO has a high standard for various issues, such as the admissibility of an amendment, so you're not adding matter, and also their approach to inventive step. Do you think it's fair to think that the EPO is too strict? You're right, the EPO is strict, but bear in mind, third parties won't, will want uh, certainty. And certainty requires that patents are strong, for example, for assertion, for validity, etc. And especially as the guidelines for examination have developed over the past decades, the EPO's practice has become more and more transparent. And that does help applicants and practitioners understand the level of arguments and the knowledge that is required. See, an advantage of the strictness of the EPO examination is that you know what type of arguments will be used during the examination. Compare this, for example, to the examination before the USPTO. A US examiner has probably a dozen different ways to argue obviousness of an invention. Each of these ways using different arguments. And that makes it much more difficult for a patent attorney to argue that an invention is not obvious. The EPO, on the other hand, strictly follows one way of arguing obviousness. That is the problem-solution approach, which makes the procedure much and much clearer. Yeah, I tend to agree. And, and it is that structured approach at the EPO, which sometimes means that it's, it's easier to get a patent grant in Europe with an inventive step than compared with the US where that, I'm not going to say less formal, but it feels less structured at times approach means it's, it is just harder to get past that um, obviousness barrier. And you're right also that we've all seen, I think, the guidelines develop over the years. And, and each time there's a real drive, I think, to clarify and improve the guidance to practitioners and applicants so that they have a better feeling of how the EPO will apply the law, just making the process more predictable and certain. Mm. That, that can never be a bad thing. 
The EPO's problem and solution approach for inventive step really is quite unique, isn't it? Um, for those of you listening who are less familiar with the problem and solution, I, I thought I'd just quickly summarize in three steps how it's applied. The first one is once the claims which define the invention have been searched, you then find the prior art document that is closest to your invention. The second step, starting with that document that you found that is closest, you decide the problem that the invention solves relative to that closest prior art document. And then third, finally, you ask the question, starting from that closest prior art document and supplementing with another document, would the skilled person find it obvious to solve the problem in the same way as our invention? Now, Dirk, when you were writing your book each year, I was always surprised how many times you were rewriting your chapter on inventive step. It seemed as though each time you reread it and over that, that year, you'd, you'd refined your understanding, thought further about it, perhaps had some more experience with the EPO and, and just understood it at a deeper level each time, which, you know, year on year really surprised me. But I guess it's an ever, an ever deeper topic to explore. That's right. It was one of the topics, main topics in the book, which took a long time before I cast it in a form which I appreciated. My first understanding of the problem and solution approach back in 1990 came from a German language book on the EPC written by Singer. He was a member of the Enlarged Board of Appeal. And that book devoted 25 pages to inventive step. And one of them was about the characteristics of the skilled person. And moreover, this page was very much at the end of the 25 pages. So you got the impression that anything that's important for in inventive step assessment is not the skilled person. It took many iterations in subsequent editions of my book to reach the stage where the skilled person has acquired its current very prominent position. I remember that many years ago when I joined EIP, I had taken a kind of sabbatical of three or four months, which I spent in studying only inventive step. If you look at the guidelines on inventive step, you also see there is a considerable development. Each new edition has important changes. And not always does that mean that the way of examination changed so much, but it is an improved understanding of the EPO and an improved way of laying down the way they operate. Of course, there's another reason for the EPO to amend the section on the inventive step in the guidelines each year, and that is the advent of new technologies. And it has taken quite a few very major amendments to incorporate all changes in case law about the assessment of inventive step relating to, in the first place, computer implemented inventions, second place, biotech inventions, and in the third place, medical therapies. You know, I'd forgotten about that sabbatical you took, Dirk. I remember now when, when you're in the office saying you were going to <laughs> disappear into a dark room with many, many textbooks to study. Yeah, I remember when I was training Inventive Step, you know, early on, it felt quite a fuzzy subject to get your hands hands around. 
uh, it was certainly one of the hardest to, to really learn and understand and appreciate and still needs thinking today. And it's, it can be very fact and case specific. Depending on the invention and, and what is chosen as the closest prior art document, you can it sometimes feel like a bit of an artificial construction with problem solution. Um, you know, the, the, the closest prior art document may be still quite some distance from the invention in question. So to call it the closest prior art document can sometimes feel a little bit odd. And, and even depending on how you choose the closest prior art document, it really can make the difference as to whether or not the invention can conclude as being inventive or not. And so even the subtleties of choosing that document from the beginning can make a difference. So we could talk about that for hours, couldn't we? Um, what do you think about problem and solution, Dirk? With all this study, I mean, it, it, it inevitably has to carry some form of hindsight because it's assessed after the patent application was filed and the invention was conceived. But do you think there's too much hindsight in the process? Do you think the problem and solution process is, is too rigid or artificial? What, what do you think? This hindsight issue is always a problem because you can accuse the examiner of hindsight in about each step of the process, but that is not fair. Examiner needs hindsight. And in fact, this problem solution approach is a method of assessing the invention with a well-prescribed amount of hindsight. Uh, as an applicant, you would like your invention to be assessed without any hindsight at all to make the assessment fair. But uh, you cannot avoid hindsight as an examiner. For example, when an examiner carries out a search to find relevant prior art for the invention, he just uses the claimed invention as a basis for his search. That means 100% hindsight. This problem-solution approach now carefully lays down in which steps of the assessment hindsight will be used and in which steps hindsight should not be used. For example, during search, as just mentioned, but during the selection of the closest prior art, during formulation of the problems, you use hindsight. You use, the, in fact, the complete invention. But in the very last step, whether you decide that the invention is obvious, you should not use hindsight. So this, I would call it judiciously permitted hindsight, allows a patent attorney to attack the arguments of an examiner if, he, if the examiner uses hindsight in a step where that should not be used. Here's an example of the evolution of my understanding of the use of hindsight. Suppose in this case, the examiner argues that an invention is obvious in view of a combination of two prior art documents, a first document and a second document. There are now two possibilities in which the argument could flow. In the first approach, the examiner finds in his search a first document. He uses this document to formulate a problem that the skilled person should solve. In the next step, the skilled person tries to solve the problem by carrying out a second search to look for a solution. And then he, he may find a second document that helps him to solve the problem. The question now is, will the skilled person find that second document? If yes, the invention has no inventive step. It is obvious. 
If no, there is an inventive step. End of the first approach. A second approach of how the flow of arguments could go. The examiner carries out a search and finds both the first document and the second, second document that together reveal the invention. Then he formulates a problem for the skilled person based on the first document. In the third step, the skilled person will be presented with the combination of the two documents, the first one and the second one. And the skilled person will be asked the question, is this combination of documents obvious for you in view of the problem to be solved? If yes, there is no inventive step. If no, there is an inventive step. And mark and that in the second approach, there is no second search. And you give both documents to the skilled person, which is much more hindsight than in the first approach. All right, this ends the second approach. When you look in the guidelines, you will not find uh, this approach as formulated here, but you do find elements of it. And these elements all correspond to the second approach in which you offer both documents as a combination to the skilled person and ask him, is this combination obvious? So the EPO apparently uses the second approach with this apparently more hindsight than the first. I remember a few years ago in a meeting with about 100 experienced practitioners, I asked which approach was the one applied by the EPO. More than 50% said the first approach with two searches. So you see there is still a lot to be gained in knowledge about hindsight in the assessment of inventive step. I can sympathize with that. More than 50% who voted for the first approach because it does feel unnatural in the second approach, doesn't it, to um, consider the inventor's invention process with so much hindsight. It, it feels more natural to think of the skilled person with a problem to solve, clutching their closest piece of prior art, to then look for a solution in, in, the, in the literature, in the prior art, to see yeah. if they can solve it. But, but that, of course, is the first approach. Um, do, do, you think, do you think there's too much hindsight, I guess, as we've said before, it's inevitable it's going to be there. Yeah, it is true that the method used by the EPO, the second one, has more hindsight than the first approach. However, when you take this first approach and work it out in detail to find, a, to make, a, set up a complete system for assessing a method step, you will notice that it appears unworkable it will never become a good tool to assess inventive step. So here you have to deviate from uh, too much resemblance with the actual process of making an invention by an inventor and have to step a little bit aside to the legal side to make a workable assessment. Yeah, I mean, in the end, every invention has a story from an R&D project all the way through to a patent filing and beyond. But you're right, sometimes with the hindsight piece, there needs to be a, a, a structure to analyze it more carefully. I think this just goes to show that inventive step, as, as I started with on this question, is 
is an ever evolving and developing topic. Um, you can even see this in the guidelines, can't you, as, as the EPO produce their updates to refine uh, their teaching and guidance to the practitioners. I might add an, uh, a nice story. Uh, that even the EPO sometimes wrestles with the precise wording of the problem-solution approach. Until recently, the guidelines used the phrase, would the skilled person have made the combination of documents in the hope of some improvement or advantage? The word hope here was ill-chosen. Hope means a belief, a desire. The correct word to use, of course, is reasoned expectation. A reasoned expectation of some improvement or advantage. By logical reasoning, the skilled person expects the positive outcome of the combination of documents. When Matthew and I discovered this discrepancy in the EPO publications, we wrote to the editor of the EPO guidelines and to the editor of the EPO book on case law of the Boards of Appeal. And to our gladness, within about one month, both publications were amended after many years having used the incorrect word hope. I remember that very, very clearly. I remember sitting at my desk reading the objection with this word hope in and feeling very frustrated that that really just didn't sit right at all. And us then discussing it. So for it to go from that that early early point all the way through to the updates of the guidelines and case law was was it's very satisfying, but it also was was comforting to know that the EPO are are listening and cooperative and you know want to make the law clearer and more consistent. I think that was a real take home message that you know these things can be can be addressed and resolved. And of course, that's one example of helping to evolve the law. Um, I, it is inevitable that technology will progress and, and the law needs to, to evolve and keep up. Uh, but also there are so many decisions taken on a, on a daily, monthly basis that inevitably there will be some divergence of practice and those decisions on the points of law and, and resolving them will take time. But Dirk, you, you've helped shape the law on various occasions, haven't you? Tell us, tell us how you went about this. It is usually a, through a process of logic. I read the text. When there is a change in law, I read the old text, read the new text, read the travel preparatoire behind it and find out why was it changed and does the new wording actually implement that change? And sometimes I interpret the provisions of the EPC in a way different from the EPO. And in my book, I first mention, of course, how the EPO interprets the provision, but then uh, I make a note, I say, um, however, and give my reasoning for the interpretation of the law. And I did so, for example, on the period for paying renewal fees, uh, also on the possibility to file a patent application written in two different languages. And it's then fun to see a Board of Appeal picking up the point, and a few years later, the law and all the guidelines are changed. Uh, I mentioned the travaux préparatoires, which I usually consult. These are 
preparatory documents, internal discussion documents often, of the law, and they summarize uh, the uh, discussions during meetings in the years before the actual law was laid down. And they provide valuable insights in why a particular wording was chosen. Before you joined and were working on your book, Dirk, I'd never heard of these travaux préparatoires. Um, but, but yet they are so foundational in the lawmaking process and, and, and they don't go out of date. The law was, was, was built upon them. Um, but at the same time, they weren't online once upon a time. They, they're very, well, almost rough working documents, aren't they? I think you used to originally have to get, did you have to order copies, I think, from the original yeah. paper, paper yeah. archives? You're right. In the early days, you had to call a secretary of the legal department and ask a copy of a travaux preparatoire of a certain article of the EPC. And they would make a copy of it, send the pile of paper to your home address with a bill of one Deutschmark per copy. And now it has become much easier. It's all online and you can find it on the EPO website. God, what a difference that makes. <laughs> but again, it's it's... It's another example of how the EPO is open um, to to share that that background information and keen to listen and 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 help it you know shape shape the law and and guide practitioners and applicants on on exactly what the law is and how it's applied. And this, I mean, this I think could resonate with um, with those new to the profession. I mean the the. EPC and the qualifying exams to become a European patent attorney. I think they can be, they can really be very daunting to someone starting out in their career. I know you've done much, much teaching of, of, of the law to students over your years. And from that, is, is there anything you'd say are key points or tips on, on understanding the EPC law and, and how the EPO apply it, which you wish you'd appreciated sooner and, and would want to pass on? Yeah, maybe maybe two points. The first point is that it is a legal exam. It is no showcase for your technical ingenuity. You should show legal ingenuity. The second point is definition of the skilled person is critical here. You see, many parts of the EPC are perceived through the eyes of the skilled person, although he is fictitious. So an examiner or practitioner needs to put themselves in the shoes of this skilled person. So put the definition and understanding of the skilled person first when reading or preparing an argument. And this applies not only when sitting in the EQE qualification exams, but also when sitting behind your desk as qualified patent attorney. You're right. So many debates on a point of law boil down to the skilled person and their perspective on things. And and yet it's still open to debate because the skilled person is this fictional character with no creativity. Their perspective is defined at a point in time inevitably with hindsight. And the skilled person is, is defined by a person who inevitably has an opinion on the matter, yet the skilled person is supposed to look at things objectively. It's, it's, it's not easy, is it? So there's one burning question, Dirk, that I have, and, and I wonder whether it will ever be answered by the EPO. 
The guidelines to examination and the case law use the term technical in many ways. I must admit I had a look to see how many times I could find and I, I've got a list here of a few. Um, we've got technical effect, technical purpose, technical considerations, technical character, technical means, technical problem, technical teaching, technicality, and nowhere that I can find is there a positive definition of what this term technical means. And, and I realise you can't predict the future. Um, there may be unknown developments in technology and so forth, which might make it hard to define technical at this moment in time. But, but Dirk, with all your years, can, can you define technical? Um, no. <laughs> and the meaning of technical within the EPO yeah, you were right, there's no positive way, and they usually defined it in a negative way. It's not a discovery, not an aesthetic creation, etc. You can find these negative definitions in Article 52, second paragraph of the EPC. If you really want a positive definition, the guidelines will not help you. But Years ago, the Enlarged Board of Appeal has given a definition in its decision G2 of 07. And it states as follows. An invention is a technical teaching, that is, a teaching to methodically utilize controllable natural forces to achieve a causal perceivable result. Um, this definition was copied by the enlarged board from established national German case law. But however nice that they cited a definition which they approved at that time, you will not find it in the guidelines and not even in the EPO book on case law of the boards of appeal. And the enlarged board of itself apparently has withdrawn from it. Because in later decisions, it does not cite this definition anymore. Take, for example, G3 of 08, just one year later, which states, it is to be hoped that readers will accept these assertions without requiring a definition of exactly what falls within the boundaries of technical. So, however important the term technical is in the EPC, the EPO does not use a clear definition of the term. Oh well, maybe one day. I'll, I'll keep hoping, Dirk. So we come to the close of our session here, and Dirk, it's, as always, it's been a pleasure discussing the EPC with you. Um, thank you very much for joining us and for sharing some of your, your, your insights. It's been very much appreciated. Thank you. It has been a real pleasure. EIP Talks will be back with another episode soon. To make sure you don't miss an edition, you can subscribe to EIP Talks on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or SoundCloud. And for more patent updates, you can follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter by searching EIP. Thank you for listening.